You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I know I'm doing great because I just had an amazing conversation about paleobotany. And if there's one thing that comes close to my love of extant botany, it's my love for paleobotany. Joining us today is Dr. Nan Crystal Ahrens from Hobart and William Smith Colleges in New York, and she studies the origin of angiosperms. You know, those things called flowering plants that dominate the landscape today. That wasn't always the case, in fact, for much of Earth's history, angiosperms hadn't even existed. But when they appeared on the scene, they quickly, as we understand it, rose to dominance and now make up the majority of the world's floras. How this happened, why it happened, what factors led to the dominance of flowering plants, these are all the questions that Dr. Arns and her colleagues are trying to answer. It's incredible work and I don't want to steal any of her thunder, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my discussion with Dr. Arns. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Nan Ahrens, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? All right. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm always happy to talk about fossil plants. I am a faculty member in the Department of Geoscience at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. We're a liberal arts college in upstate New York on the beautiful Finger Lakes. And we just got our first snow a couple of days ago. Woo-hoo. So it's pretty exciting here. My research is very broad in the sense that I'm really interested in how plants in particular, but sometimes I think about ecosystems more synoptically than that, are interacting with the environment and environmental change to produce the patterns of evolution that we've observed. And I think I got started in this because I really, I grew up in the forests of New England. I love trees. And I always wanted to kind of understand them as organisms. You know, we're we're animals, we think about animals, we have empathy for animals, but I kind of get that for trees too. And I really wanted to understand how come they are the way they are? Why do they live where they live? Who do they live with? How do they interact with one another? And then to think about that over the scope of geologic time. And I also was lucky enough to grow up right where um, the Triassic Basin of Connecticut met the really beat up roots of an ancient mountain range. And so I was always drawn to that geological connection. And you put life and geology together, you get paleontology. (laughs) That is a really awesome trajectory. And a lot of what you said resonates because you do kind of get a sense that Because they're so foreign to us, plants get the short shrift. We don't empathize as readily for them. But people that do make that connection, that these are living things, growing, fighting, breathing, reproducing. And then you add to that the context of geologic time and realize that plants have a much longer history on land than any animal. And there's just so many things for the curious mind to ponder and and explore. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what's 
what's interesting, if you study the history of evolutionary thought, you know, going back even before Darwin, what folks were thinking about in terms of their understanding of the fossil record and life and how life got there, you know, all of those models were built on animals. Our entire theory about evolution was built on animals. And plants are fundamentally different and they do things in different ways. And that I think means that sometimes we may need to rethink our rules. For example, when animals develop, if you think about any animal that, any multicellular animal that you know about, it starts out as a fertilized egg, a zygote. And then as the cells differentiate, they move around to get to the right place in that animal's body. And plants can't do that because hmm. they have cell walls. Their cells, once they differentiate, can't go anywhere. And so plants have had to solve the developmental problem in a whole bunch of different ways. And that means their bodies are different, the way they respond to the environment is different, and even their genetics is different in some fundamental ways. So for example, if you think about a tree, every single solitary tip of every single branch is more different from each other than most humans are to each other. Wow. Because there are changes in those genomes accumulating throughout the whole 100, 200, 500, thousand year life of that tree. And that really changes how those trees put their genes into the next generation. Because of course, their fruits, their flowers, their seeds are differentiating in those diff individual little branches. And so the rules are different for plants. And I think it really behooves us to, re to rethink our ideas, some of our ideas about evolution in light of these very different creatures. Wow, I had never really heard it put into that context. That's really helpful to think about, again, the specialness of this lineage, but also just, again, the, the amount to offer the curious mind in thinking about the trajectory of, you know, what, 412 million years of evolution since they made their way onto the first shores. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I started out looking at the coal forests of the Pennsylvanian, and we did some really interesting sort of ecological work there. But I got dragged up into the Mesozoic <laughs> when I went to the University of California, Berkeley for my very first academic job. And um, there was a group of paleontologists there, uh, mostly vertebrate paleontologists, who were working in the Cretaceous in Montana and thinking about the end Cretaceous extinction. And they kind of got me sucked into this research group. And I started getting real interested in the plants that were populating that landscape before, mostly before, but also during and after that ecological event. And that got me interested in the, the origin of flowering plants and just thinking about, okay, you know, if you look around us, when I take students outside, I take them out on campus and I say, okay, find me a plant that isn't a flowering plant. <laughs> and they can do it, right? We've got some pine trees on campus um, and some spruces and things like that, and a ginkgo or two, and a metasequoia or two. <laughs> but you know what? Most of the things around us are flowering plants. And when I ask the students, and this is even a harder question, name a plant that you eat that isn't a flowering plant. Ooh. And they've all come up with mushrooms. Mushrooms aren't plants. <laughs> so then they start thrashing around and they think of like lettuce and Brussels sprouts and <laughs> um, kale and corn and wheat. And nope, all of those are flowering plants. And so if we think about how dominant 
flowering plants are in our landscapes today. But then when you realize that they are the new kids on the block, right? Our very first angiosperm fossils probably show up in the early Cretaceous somewhere, maybe in the latest Jurassic, but we really don't have good evidence for that yet. Some of the molecular phylogenies are suggesting that the divergence of flowering plants may be much earlier than that, but the fossil records not telling us that. And that's an interesting story in and of itself. But to think about these plants who evolved in an ecosystem that was already full of plants, it's not like this was the Silurian, you know, 420 million years ago with this landscape completely barren and ready for colonization. This was the world that was already full of plants. It was already fully vegetated. Hmm. And so how is it, and this was the question that kind of got me, how is it that they managed to wedge their way into these ecosystems and not just find a place in the ecosystems, but come to dominate them? and then come to dominate and drive the evolution of the animals that they shared these ecosystems with. And you think about that, I can't think of another lineage that really did that. Hmm. You know, most of the really successful lineages like dinosaurs, dinosaurs were jumping into a landscape where there weren't a lot of other big animals, right? They're jumping into the post-Permian world where everything that's more than just teeny tiny has been become extinct. They have the world to themselves, but that wasn't the world that angiosperms entered. They entered a fully vegetated world. And so how is it that they managed to find all the different places that they could live and then figure out how to become successful? And I anthropomorphized a little bit, but they're working with a very challenging ecological landscape. Yeah. Really wild ideas to think about. And it's okay to anthropomorphize in this podcast. I think it's okay to relate to plants in that way. But Darwin called it an abominable mystery because it seems like you said, angiosperms just came onto the scene and now they pretty much dominate the scene. And I think in a lot of ways, we've gotten a lot more resolution, at least from my understanding. But at the same time, I feel like it's the typical science cliche that once you ask or find answer to one question, uh, suddenly all these new questions pop up. And I, I would assume that just based on what I've read of your work and others, it seems like it's even more of an abominable mystery before because of what you just outlined. It's not just that uh, a bunch of niches were open and available. It was that they not only appeared suddenly by the looks of it in the fossil record, they took over relatively quickly. Well, I think, you know, eh, relatively quickly is, again, geologic. <laughs> Geologists think about relative really differently. But here's a couple of things that are interesting. So Darwin's comment about the abominable mystery really was a commentary on the fossil record more than it was on the trajectory of evolution as he understood it. Because really there hadn't been very much in the way of terrestrial paleontology. And that's not just plants, that's animals too. Mm in that crucial early Cretaceous time period. That's not a time period that in the places that Darwin and his fellows would be working, so Western and Central Europe, North America, and so on, that there were really good fossil deposits. There weren't a lot of good fossil deposits of those ages. And what Darwin understood of the fossil record when he was writing in the mid-19th century was that when we first see things that look like dicot angiosperm leaves, they look familiar, mm. okay? They don't have this weird look the way all the animals do, right? <laughs> the animals look really weird. But these look like 
perfectly good, you know, plants that you might see in a forest anywhere around you. Now, the details are different. We've taken 100 years to kind of appreciate that. But what Darwin was reacting to was he was expecting the sort of steady progression of intermediate fossils that the theory of gradualistic Darwinian classical natural selection predicted. And what Darwin didn't understand is that, well, first of all, he didn't have the resolution of the fossil record. And you know what? We kind of still don't. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of fossils out there that we wish we had, right? But there's also the fact that Darwin was a breeder of animals. Mm. He didn't understand as deeply as he might that plants can can pop off a new species in a single generation through a single hybridization event. And that's not something animals can do. And because they can do that, they're capable of generating new morphologies, new ways of patterning their bodies, new traits much more quickly. And in fact, we almost kind of have to not expect that gradual incremental bit by bit evolutionary change in plants that we expect in animals just because of the way that they can do their genetics and the way that they can create new species. Now, it's not to say that they can't, it's not to say that natural selection doesn't happen in that incremental way it does with plants, but we're not clear, I don't think, that that's how most of our species are formed. And in fact, if we think about corn, one of our most important agricultural crops in the United States, the transition between the wild version, which is called teosinte, and our agricultural corn was probably one catastrophic mutation. Now in animals, most of those catastrophic mutations are going to be fatal. In plants, because of the way they do their development, because of their tolerance for genetic monkey business, they can have a catastrophic mutation that then leads to a lineage that can reproduce. Now, of course, our ancestors took that catastrophic mutant and refined it through natural selection and produced all the, you know, fabulous varieties of corn that we have today. But it still was, boom, one plant out in a field somewhere and somebody just happened to stumble across it and go, hey, that would be good to work with. But that's not something that animals do quite so readily. So what that means is that if Darwin is looking for these gradual incremental fossils that he had had documented so clearly in animals, he's probably not going to find them. And that's been a challenge for the paleontologists too. I was was recently at the geology meetings in uh, Indianapolis and I happened to run into a colleague of mine named David Dilcher. You know, he sat down and he reiterated to me, you know, my goal in my career has been to find the first flowering plant. And in fact, he's been working in China for the last several decades, and that's where we've got rocks of the right age. And he's found some really fabulous early flowering plants, but are they the oldest? Well, it's hard to know because we're not quite sure what we should be looking for. (laughs) We recognize them when they have all the traits that we see in living flowering plants, but we really don't know what the ancestors should look like. Because if we travel back to the Triassic and the Jurassic, before there were flowering plants on the scene, there are a lot of lineages that were experimenting with the traits that we recognize as being flowering plants. Yeah. 
And there's so much fodder there for anyone that really has the curiosity to pursue it. But again, it, it seems like a very large challenge from a paleontological perspective because you will see, like you said, the search for the first flower. And a lot of times that press gets headline news, which is great whenever you see plants doing that. But the, th- the thought that one would find a first representative of any lineage is, is kind of seems a little um, oversimplified. But then also, again, what do you go looking for? There was plenty in the gymnosperm lineages that that could present convergent evolution to just being able to get your propagules the most visibility or exposed to currents to get them out or protecting the developing seed in some sort of leaf-like tissue. So I guess from a paleobotanical perspective is how do you even begin to look for something like that? Do you target certain strata? Do you target certain habitat types? Where do you, where do you go looking for these early angiosperm lineages? And, and what do you use to kind of say, okay, maybe this is actually something different here? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, you go look for rocks of the right age. So right now, the oldest really convincing macro fossils of flowering plants. So not necessarily pollen, because we've got some pollen that's we think might be on the angiosperm lineage that's just a touch older. But we're looking in that sort of early Cretaceous time window. Now, there's some folks who are looking in the upper part of Jurassic too, but again, there's a moment in time where sea levels were low. We didn't have a lot of good terrestrial ecosystems preserved. So the geologic record is kind of working against us in some <laughs> respects. Right now, the hot place to go is China, mm-hmm. and it's out of the same series of strata that the feathered dinosaurs are coming, mm-hmm. and they are early Cretaceous. There was some hope early on that they pushed back into the latest Jurassic. I'm not sure um, right now. I don't work in those uh, areas, so I'm not sure what the oldest sediments that they've got good terrestrial ecosystems in. But the other trick is that it really depends on your model of where and what the first angiosperms were like ecologically. Because the real challenge with being a paleontologist who works with organisms that live on land is that there's really only a handful of places that they can be preserved. And so again, if I take my students out onto the campus and I say, okay, where where could plants be, or even animals for that matter, be being preserved? Where are they entering the fossil record? And we look around and there's lots of grass and there's hills and there's all kinds of you know beautiful landscape covered in plants. But the only place that there's any hope of entering the fossil record is in our beautiful Seneca Lake, right? Hmm. And that's actually a great place because the bottom's probably not well oxygenated. And so we know that from the mud we pull up from the bottom. And we know that it's fine grained and it's clay rich. And those are all the, the good things that you want when you preserve fossil plants. It's a touch on the basic side. I wish it was just a little bit more acidic for for really preserving things well, but that's it. That's the only place. So all of the plants that we see around us are not going to get into the fossil record unless they happen to have the luck of getting washed into the lake. So pollen and spores moving through the atmosphere, you know, they could land in the lake. We see that happen every spring. We had a couple of really bad rainstorms uh, midsummer a lot of debris washed into the lake, all of that stuff is probably mm-hmm. going to end up in the fossil record, or at least some of it. But 
you know, if that plant that we're interested in happens to live in a forest, if it happens to not be big and produce lots and lots of leaves, if it happens to not shed its leaves, then the probability of that plant ending up in the fossil record is small. And so it's not surprising that the oldest flowering plants, the oldest flowers we have today are coming from water plants. And that's because they're living in an environment that's likely to be preserved. And so finding that oldest fossil, although, you know, kind of that's what, what jazzes us as paleontologists, finding that thing. Um, That's the excitement. You split open that rock and there's this beautiful leaf Mm -hmm. or a lovely flower or a seed or something of that nature. Um, That's the thrill. That's the excitement. Right. And so we're always wanting to find that beautiful fossil. But I'm not sure that with respect to the early angiosperms, that that's where we're going to find the really the beginning of the story. Because if my colleague Taylor Field and I are correct in our work with the ecology of early angiosperms, they're up in the forest somewhere and they're unlikely to make it into the fossil record as whole plants. Wow. That is absolutely mind-blowing to think about is just, again, the rarity at which anything becomes fossilized, but then the specificity, like you just described, at the habitat types that do lend well to fossilization and how many, a majority of which, do not. And it's almost like an alien trying to study Earth coming down, putting a bucket through the atmosphere and scooping up just the coast and trying to describe an ecosystem from the bucket that they got out of the coast, right? Exactly. On that note, um, you know, going to look for these early days of angiosperm evolution and the kinds of ecological scenarios that would lend to the evolution of these, you wrote this beautiful article that was just so understandable and, and painted such a beautiful picture of this you know, pursuit And it was entitled Damp, Dark, and Disturbed. Now, you mentioned something in the forest. What does that mean for earlier angiosperm evolution? Okay, so what um, Taylor Field, who was a postdoc in my lab at Berkeley at the time, and he was studying the ecology and the ecophysiology of living plants that are very close to the base of the angiosperm tree. So in the 1990s, 2000s, and into the first decade of this millennium, there were lots of folks who were working on the relationships amongst living angiosperms. And people have been talking about that for a long time, but with the advent and the reduction in cost, frankly, of sequencing genomes, we began to use genetic information for the first time to reconstruct the history of less charismatic organisms, shall we say, like (laughs) plants. Everybody was willing to sink, you know, millions of dollars into sequencing the human genome, beans, eh, and certainly these, you know, sort of not terribly economically interesting plants, not so much. But with the advent of PCR and the ability to sequence genomes quickly, then the ability to sequence the genomes of just about anything and use that information to work out evolutionary relationships, because of course, one of the principles of uh, evolution is that we are moving genetic information from generation to generation. That seemed like kind of the holy grail for reconstructing evolutionary relationships. So I was, you know, sort of next door to a lab that was kind of at the forefront of doing that when I was at Berkeley. And they were working out the angiosperm relationships and recognized that there were some unexpected plants that showed up at the base of those. So the most ancestral of living angiosperms. One of them is called Amborella, and it lives only in the Southern Pacific. 
Um, and then there were some other groups like the Chloranthaceae, like Chloranthus and um, star anise and some other plants like that. And so Taylor had gotten really interested in looking at what do those plants have in common ecologically? Because we can make the argument that what those plants share in common ecologically and morphologically, they probably inherited from their most recent common ancestor. And that plant's probably extinct, but you know we can understand something about those ancestors by looking at the traits that are shared and inherited hmm. by the living representatives that are very close to the basin's tree. So he had a bunch of data and uh, when he came to my lab as a postdoc, and we mapped that onto the phylogenetic tree and we discovered that those plants had a couple of things in common. One is that they tended to live in the understories of forests and in particularly in soils that were wet all the time. And there's the damp part. Hmm. They were in the understory, there's the dark part. And the other thing, and this was an insight from his own field research, is that they tended to grow, they tended to establish their seeds got started on soils that had been disturbed by something. A tree falls and, and throws up a bunch of soil, they would grow on the, you know, the part of the soil that the tree left behind, or a log fell, they would establish on the log, or a stream bank collapses, they would establish on that stream hmm. bank. And so they were living in these dark understories in wet forests, and they were establishing undisturbed habitats. And that kind of when we, we realized that, it was like, well, of course, <laughs> um, one of the primary characteristics that we've recognized for a long time in the Cretaceous flowering plants, and this was reported by um, Leo Hickey from the Potomac Group in the 1970s, is these plants tended to be found on stream banks, on point bars, in very ephemeral kinds of habitats. And so we had this idea, even from the fossil record, that flowering plants really went for these disturbed habitats. And that kind of made sense because one thing we know about them in general is that they can do their life cycle very quickly. They can go from seed to seed in sometimes less than a year hmm. and in certainly living plants, much less than that, right? So we knew that that really quick lifestyle, that ability to take advantage of habitats that didn't persist very long, we knew that from the fossil record, we knew that from the living plants. But when we saw that characteristic conserved in these flowering plants, the ones that are closest to that common ancestor and their traits, then it was like, of course, that's where we would expect to find the earliest flowering plants, because that seems to be that ancestral ecology that we're seeing conserved. Wow. And then later we get the water plants, the whole, the, the family of water lilies and the aquatic plants, the plants that went back to the fresh water. And then later on, the diversification into the myriad of things that we see today, the eudicots. Basically, if, if we're right, then the probability of finding those first flowers is really small because those forested habitats tend not to preserve in the same way a stream margin or a swamp or something of that nature tends to, or a lake tends to preserve. And doesn't mean we're not gonna get lucky. <laughs> and if somebody sent me a manuscript to review with an extraordinary preservation of some forested ecosystem from the very earliest Cretaceous and there they were, I would be clapping my hands. <laughs> um, won't say it's not gonna happen because the fossil record has provided us with so many extraordinary things. Yeah, it sounds like you should uh, 
all be crossing your fingers for that big volcanic eruption that dumped ash onto one of these early forests. Yeah, yeah well, that's that's another way, right, that we could get that extraordinary preservation. Yeah. And we've got examples of that from certainly later in the fossil record. We just need one from the early Cretaceous. That's what we need. It's just remarkable to think of the the forensics that goes into validating all of these, because like you said, not only were you seeing these commonalities among these extant lineages that were just lucky enough to make it through to uh, current days, but to go back and look at the sediments in which some of these early fossils were preserved and, and try to understand what kind of environment that was. And, and to have that confirmed must have been a very big moment for anyone on that project just to kind of go, whoa, OK, we're on to something here. Yeah, well, and I think that that's at the point when we have the most confidence in our inference from the geologic record, right, is when you have several lines of evidence that are converging on the same answer. And I think that you know, we, we can't do experiments in the past, right? Because mm -hmm. it's happened already. Sometimes we have natural experiments we can analyze post hoc, but the way we approach testing those hypotheses rigorously is we've got to see multiple lines of evidence converging on the same inference. And so I think when we see the early Cretaceous fossil record, we see our trait, our physiological trait mapping, and then we see the phylogenies kind of converging on the same answer. I think at that point we can start to say, yeah, I think we're probably on to something here. And then that in turn will guide how we look at and where we look in the fossil record for new insights in that next, uh, next big clue. Yeah. And again, one of the great themes that runs through your work is just using this ecological perspective for this. And I think something that you said earlier lends well to this disturbance hypothesis is that, yes, early angiosperms were coming on board to a land that was, like you said, already vegetated. So these mm -hmm. hyper-disturbed habitats really would have been those niches that were available to something that did have this fast turnover of life cycle and could handle the disturbance. Um, and you even went to, on to say that potentially dinosaurs could have been that disturbance mechanism, or at least one of them. Well, you think about it, you know, if we're talking about forested or at least woodland kinds of environments, and you've got these giant animals crashing through them <laughs> in search of vegetation. You know, I mean, you think about Jurassic Park, right? You know, those beautiful images of those reconstructed dinosaurs. And they're always nibbling around the edges, right? Mm. Well, if we think about big animals today, our best example are forest elephants from Africa. And they just rip up the forests that they're in. They create highways and open areas where they create water holes. They are really modifying their landscape. And there's, I don't think, any good reason to believe that other large animals from other lineages like dinosaurs weren't doing the same things in the forests of the Cretaceous. And, you know, if you have these big animals who are crashing through there, stepping on stuff, breaking stuff, eating stuff, ripping up stuff, there are the places that plants like Amborella love to live. Hmm. And so there's going to be a strong selection pressure toward plants that can take advantage of those environments, that disturbed soil, that tree fall gap, or that dinosaur made gap in the canopy <laughs> and go for the light. And also there's going to be selection for lineages that can do their reproduction, go from seed to seed really fast, because you know what? They're gonna be back and they're gonna <laughs> rip you up again. So, I think that 
it's certainly not the only disturbance that's relevant. Sure. Because again, you know, we see in the Potomac group of, of the Eastern United States, where most of these plants are preserved in stream banks, they're living on um, point bars, places that are being reworked by floods, you know, probably several times a year. So that's not the only disturbance that's relevant. But I think, you know, we ignore that animal disturbance at our, at our peril, because they were big critters crashing around in those ecosystems. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think even living in the Northeast for as long as I did, even something as modestly sized as a deer can have ramifications for the environment as a whole. Yeah, Yeah, there's some really interesting work in the Adirondacks by um, the SUNY Environmental College up there where they've uh, put fences around chunks of forest to keep the deer out. And you're seeing succession happen in a whole different way Hmm. when you exclude deer. So yeah, even something that's modestly sized like that, that's a fairly intensive browser, as we know some of the dinosaurs were, is really reshaping the composition and the structure of those forests. And so I think that if we want to think about those terrestrial ecosystems holistically, we have to take into consideration that we've got big, big stompy things. <laughs> For sure. And and it's really easy hearing all this and, and again, seeing all of the avenues for just all of the different ways you can attack this question. It's very easy to see why this this early angiosperm bug bit you and, and you haven't looked back. And, and a lot of your recent work is still focusing on this, but in a different context. So you're, you've been doing a lot of work in, in Utah as of late, right? Yeah, we, um, we stumbled across, and again, this is kind of how it happens in hmm. paleontology a lot of the time, right? Um, we had been out there for an entire summer where it's about an eight week field season. And we had been looking in the Cedar Mountain Formation, which is early Cretaceous in South Central Utah in the San Rafael Swell. And we had been like pounding the rock for weeks. And we were, I think we were two or three days of away from when we had to pack up and head home. And we decided, I, I don't remember whether we'd had bad weather or something, something had happened. And we decided we were going to take um, half a day and go to the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry, which is a very famous dinosaur locality where uh, Allosaurus is found and Stegosaurus is found. Mm. So a very famous site. And there's this little interpretive area there and you can kind of look at the excavation and so on. And we decided we were there with our two daughters and we decided we were going to take Uh, half a day and go check that out. Nice. And it was the middle of the week and nobody else was there except this poor intern who was all by himself. So he was very anxious to sort of follow us around and chat us up. (laughs) And uh, during the course of the conversation, he said, oh, did you know about that impound pond that's just down the road there? They, They found some fossil plants. I, you know, there was some guy in here telling me that they found some fossil plants. And I'm like, no, I haven't heard about that. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, followed his directions. And basically what it was, was somebody had gone in and dug a an impound pond, which out west, they dig these ponds and build these little dams uh, to provide water for animals. So it's water for cows mostly. And, you know, they'd gone through the bulldozer and they just thrown the rock that they dug up into a big pile. And if you took those pieces and split them, there were these beautiful flowering plant fossils, just exquisite preservation. And I've never been the lucky one to find all the beautiful stuff. So (laughs) finding all the beautiful stuff was pretty exciting. 
And so we spent as much time as we possibly could digging away at that in our last couple of days out there. And then we came back the following summer with a couple of students. So we had a, a fairly sizable collection, although we know that this was a known locality and there's lots of other people who had been collecting. So there's probably a ton more material out in people's garages somewhere. Uh-oh. So we started working on that and it was it was two undergraduates well, one who who was particularly interested in this project, who worked on it for her honors thesis. As she was finishing up her honors thesis and she was interviewing for grad schools, um, she happened to go out to the Burke Museum at the University of Washington. And uh, during the tour of the museum, she said, oh, what have you got for fossil plants? And it's like, oh, not too much. We just have a handful of collections. And they took her and she pulled open the drawer and the sediments and the type of preservation is very distinctive. And so she's like, I know where that's from. That's from the Cedar Mountain Formation in Utah. And men there just, how do you know? Well, because I'm working on this for my honors thesis. So we loaned that, that material and finished up a description of that flora and then also an ecological and a climate analysis and then I had another student who looked at uh, insect damage on those particular leaves. But what was surprising about that, the sediments in which they were preserved were very likely from an ancient pond or a very small lake. Um, they're clay, they're very fine grain, they're very finely laminated, and that all says pond rather than stream or something like that. Mm-hmm. What was surprising is that there was only one tiny itsy-bitsy really ugly scrap of non-flowering plant material. It's a little piece of something in the cedar family. And really scrappy to the point where we didn't even describe it or illustrate it. You're thinking about this time, we know from the pollen record that the landscape should be full of conifers and ginkgos and ferns and cycads and everything else. But around this little pond, and here we go back to what's preserved where, Apparently, around this little pond, the only thing that was there was flowering plants. Hmm. And that led us to wonder, were we seeing something that was dried up periodically? We know that we have pretty good age date. It was probably 99 to 100 million years old. And right around that time, we are seeing some really extreme climate events, some sort of hyper-warming events, followed by cooling off a little bit, and then another hyper-warming event, and then a cooling off a little bit. And we started to speculate that perhaps this pond side was dominated by flowering plants precisely because this was the the ephemeral habitat that was only there for part of the year and that these plants could get started, could grow, could do their life cycle, and then have their seeds wait out the next bad period. Wow. But the fact that it was just flowering plants, we didn't see a scrap of fern that we didn't see much more than a single scrap of gymnosperm really was very surprising for a flora of that age. And so, you know, it makes you think about, it's not that we have this garden with everything kind of distributed evenly, but (laughs) these flowering plants really were just hanging on to this one particular habitat that they could exploit because maybe the rest of the flora couldn't because it was too short-lived or it was too alkaline or who knows what. But, you know, really thinking about the rest of the landscape, for all we know, and we haven't been able to figure that out, unfortunately, except from the palynological record, which says that there were lots of gymnosperms and lots of cycads and lots of ferns. And actually, the pollen record says that there weren't too many angiosperms. Well, they're all hanging out in this one tiny little place because that's where they could. 
It's amazing to think about, yeah, just the specificity of that habitat. But then again, these these niches, where there were niches, they were being filled, but it was a very competitive landscape for the early angiosperm. And remind me again, what time period these sediments would have been dating back to? It's 99 to 100 million years. So right at the transition from the early to the late Cretaceous. Ooh, amazing. So, yeah. yeah, you have managed, again, serendipitously to have stumbled across this, which I absolutely love that about paleontology is it's, it, it is literally just a way of being a, a treasure hunter. <laughs> yep. And, and you've stumbled on an amazing amount of treasure there. And, and one of the things I really love about your research, because it rings so true to my research, is that you're using plant traits fossilized plant traits to infer something about climate. And I do that today. And and again, it just bridges this gap between what we can see today should tell us something about the past and vice versa. So do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Because you mentioned you you were able to kind of do these analyses to assess or get an estimate of what the climate would have been like. How do you do that with fossilized plant remains? Well, there's a variety of different approaches to doing that. And the one that I use um, relies on some relationships between the form of leaves and climate traits. There are certain characteristics that anybody who walks around and looks at plants carefully will know. Like, for example, in very dry environments, leaves are very small. And that makes sense physiologically because you're losing water through your leaves. And if water is in short supply, you want to have a smaller leaf that you're losing less water from. And usually in those very arid climates, sun is not a problem. So having a small leaf is is not going to compromise your ability to to do photosynthesis really efficiently. Um, The other thing is if you've ever traveled to a rainforest, you know that most of the leaves there have these long skinny tips to them. And they're called drip tips, and they help water drain off the surface of the leaf. And that's because you want to get the water off the leaf so it doesn't clog up the stoma, that it doesn't interfere with the capture of light, um, that it doesn't interfere with other kinds of functions of the plant. So they have these long skinny tips that help drain that water off. So those are examples of just two traits. But a number of workers begun by uh, the late Jack Wolf, who worked for the U.S. Geological Survey for a long time and now continued by Bob Spicer and a lot of colleagues, have gathered together this suite of traits from dipot leaves from all over the world. And they've categorized them in particular ways and looking at particular characters like the size of the leaf, the shape of the leaf, whether the leaf has teeth or not, and uh, some forms of the base and the the tip of the leaf and so on, just a whole bunch of, of size and shape characteristics. And they have correlated those in a multidimensional space. They've correlated those with the climates under which the leaves are collected. And I actually participated in in some of that in Northern Australia, going from the rainforests in Northern Queensland down to the um, sort of starting to get into the sclerophyllous forest around uh, Lamington National Park. And what we recognized is that there is a pretty good correlation between this collection of leaf traits across species and the climates under which those plants are growing. So if we make the assumption that those are functional traits that are going to be conserved through evolution because they help the plant do what it needs to do in a variety of climates, then we can take those same traits and apply them 
into the fossil record of dicot angiosperms. So we can't do that for the Triassic. We can't do it for conifers and for ginkgos and for cycads and things like that. But for wherever we have dicot angiosperms, so starting in that sort of early Cretaceous moving forward, we can do this climate reconstruction. So basically what we do is we take all of our, our leaf species and we score them for all of these different traits and we run them into the modern database where you have a cloud of individual floras that represent different climates and we see where do our fossil floras map onto there. And then from that, by analogy with the modern climates, we reconstruct past climates. Now, the trick is that we recognize that there are possibly climates, well, not possibly, there certainly are climates of the past that we don't have represented today. And so we have to kind of fold that into the error of our estimate. But what we're able to recover from that is what's mean annual temperature like? What's cold month mean like? What's warm month mean like? Hmm. How much precipitation do we expect? And how seasonal is that precipitation? And those are the kind of climate factors that we're looking at. And what we found from Utah was, you know, again, we probably didn't have a really hard freezing season there in the mid-Cretaceous, but they probably got frost once in a while. And that the warm parts of the year were a little bit warmer than they are today. Mean annual temperature was much warmer than it is today because they didn't have a freezing season and that precipitation was seasonal as well. And so that kind of fits with our idea that maybe this pond was mm. ephemeral, maybe it was there for part of the year and not there for the rest of the year. And maybe that explains why this was the hangout for the early flowering plants that we found there a hundred million years later. That is so cool. And again, it just lends so much credence to these big ecological patterns kind of being Universal almost. Again, the players change and there's a lot of combinations that we probably don't see today and that are, will, will be new combinations into the future, but you can get these broad brushstroke ideas and say something about the environment that these organisms were living in. But I'm curious from a floristic standpoint, you know, you're not getting fully preserved trees, fully preserved shrubs, you're getting bits and pieces, but in, in someone that can identify these plants and look at them and understand their features... Would anyone that's familiar with a flora go back in time to this pond, would you see familiar things or were these lineages that have no modern representatives or are these from families that probably were early coming on board? Um, you know, do you see some of those representations uh, that would be familiar to us today? Um, these predominantly are not lineages that are around today, but you know what? They would, if you didn't look too closely, <laughs> they wouldn't look unfamiliar. Now, we do think that we have a couple representatives of some of those very early flowering plant lineages that I mentioned before. We may have some relatives of things like spicebush and things like that. But again, they're ancestors. They're not the living lineages that we recognize today because they're venation and some of the details of their leaf form are different in some important respects. So, you know, if you were standing back looking for a place to put your picnic blanket down, it wouldn't look terribly unfamiliar. But um, if you looked in detail, and certainly I, I, we don't know this because we, we don't have a lot of flowers, but the flowers might look different as well. Because, of course, in the modern flora, it's not leaves that determine taxonomic identity, it's flowers. Right. And so we have to interpret our leaf record with a grain of salt. By the time you get past the end Cretaceous extinction into the Eocene and the Oligocene, then you can get into families 
familiar modern families with leaves. Uh, before that, I'm really skeptical about doing that. <laughs> I try hard not to. But you know what? We're working with you know a legacy of a lot of paleobotanical research in the West that's done previously, going all the way back to the really the end of the 18th century. And paleobotanists kind of got a bad rap because they had this habit of picking up the leaf and going, oh, that kind of looks like an oak leaf. I'm going to put that in the oak leaf family <laughs> or even genus in some cases. And so we've got a lot of kind of that kind of trash that we have to clear up um, taxonomically because when you look really closely, it's not really exactly like the modern ones. It's similar. It reminds us of it. And that's probably because they're living in similar habitats. And if leaves, leaves have to work, right? They mm -hmm. have a job to do and they have to work. And so there is a tendency to develop convergence around particular environmental characteristics. And that's why in the modern floor, we don't use leaves to do taxonomy. And that's also why they're useful for um, reconstructing things like climate and habitat and ecology because there's widespread convergence around those traits because leaves just have to work. If they don't, you're going to starve. Yeah, really interesting perspective on kind of the taxonomic versus ecological standpoint. And anyone that spends enough time in a floristic key or trying to identify plants can empathize with that. You know, the first time I saw a needum, there was a gymnosperm vine with netted venation. What the heck is this thing? <laughs> you know, exactly. And, and that's another, you know, another really great reason why it's going to be dang tough to put our finger on the earliest flowering plants because there you've got needum, which you know what, if you don't look at it too closely and you don't see the rest of it, you don't see the reproductive structures, you would easily confuse that for a flowering plant leaf, right? For sure. And I did. I walked by that vine numerous times before I'd realized what it was. <laughs> So I'm, I'm curious, just from a fossilization standpoint, it may be obvious to uh, those in the, the paleontological world, but why is it that you have a preponderance of wood and leaves in the fossil record and so few flowers showing up, or, or in your case, where you're working in Utah, none to speak of yet? Well, I, we do have a couple of teeny tiny little flowers, and I haven't finished uh -huh. working on them yet, oh, okay. so I'm not ready to talk about them. But so if anybody out there is looking at college and really wants to <laughs> come and work on early flowering plants... Um, a couple of reasons. One is imagine a flower. Most flowers are quite delicate. They're not particularly sturdy and they don't last for very long. Mm. And those two things together mean that it is more difficult for you to get into the fossil record. Because think about it, what you have to do to end up in my lab to contribute to this conversation so you have to be growing somewhere and you have to have the misfortune of, if you're a flower, falling off your plant at a moment when you're still fresh enough that you would be recognizable. Mm. Okay. So if you imagine, you know, you've left your bouquet out a little bit too long, when those flowers go by, you're not really going to be able to recognize much from them, right? So you've got to be fresh enough that, and have the misfortune to fall off when you're still fresh enough that we could recognize you. So then you also have to have the luck to fall into an environment where you're gonna be preserved. And that might be into a pond, and then you have to get to the bottom of the pond and get buried almost immediately. Because frankly, you as a flower are just loads of deliciousness for every bacterium out there, right? So if you don't get buried right away, 
in something that's very clay and is going to keep those bacteria out, you're toast. You're going to be lunch, right? So then you're buried, you've been preserved. You have to have the luck that that particular pond doesn't get destroyed in the process of building some mountain range and that it comes to the surface as rock and that I happen to find it and collect it and curate it. So the probability of all those things happening is, is, is pretty small. Now, consider leaves. Leaves are a little bit easier. And the reason they're a little bit easier is because they're a little sturdier. And the fact of the matter is, is that I'm more likely to find an evergreen leaf, whether it be flowering plant or a gymnosperm, than I am a deciduous leaf because the deciduous leaves are kind of throwaway. They're not really very sturdy, hmm. but I might get the luck of finding a few of those. And wood, probably the most common angiosperm fossil after pollen, of course, pollen is the most abundant fossil, <laughs> period, is because it has its cell walls impregnated in lignin. And lignin is tough. And it's resistant to many, many geochemical insults. And so it's likely to be preserved. It's more likely to be preserved. And so, again, that's, you know, why we find more animals with shells in the ocean than animals without shells because they have something hard that can be preserved. Works the same way with plants. Hmm. Now, one really interesting mode that flowers have been preserved, and in fact, um, Elsa Marie Fries and her colleagues have you know, been working on these really extraordinary fossils for a long time. And that is an environment where the plants experience wildfire. So what happens when you get a not terribly intense wildfire coming through is you can get even these most delicate tissues turned to charcoal. Now charcoal is very fragile, but it's also very durable. And so if you get a fire come through, your flowers are charcoalified, your leaves are charcoalified, your wood is charcoalified, and that finds its way into a pond or a stream or something like that, the bacteria, there's nothing left for them to eat. And so that material is geologically fairly inert and much more likely to be preserved. And so if you look at all of the fossil flowers we have from that very early time period, the majority of them are, are preserved in this way, are preserved as charcoal. Wow. Which is really kind of cool. Yeah, that's wild. And I've, I've seen some of Dr. Freeze's uh, images and it is it, it, it's, it takes a little bit to comprehend what exactly it is you're seeing there. Uh, but it is yeah. remarkable the amount of preservation and detail that, that comes with that charcoalization process. Well, and I think the other thing that tells us is that these early flowers are teeny tiny, right? Yeah, yeah, not these large. Yeah, they're not the magnolias that we were expecting back in the 70s. <laughs> and that's funny to think, but again, you know, we could talk about this forever, but I, I'm sure that it took a while for the selective pressures of pollination to to lead to, you know, the magnolia flower, but... Again, that's speculation for another. But you had mentioned something early on is that, uh, you know, if you want to study early angiosperm, give you, give you a holler and talk about it. And one of the cool themes of your work is that you're incorporating undergraduate researchers into this process. And if you're a kid like me, paleontology seemed kind of off limits. I didn't know anyone personally. I didn't live near a school where this was happening. And to be able to come in at not a graduate level and, and have hands-on experience doing that is amazing. And it's something I think would probably lend to breathing new life into paleobotany as a whole, because it sounds to me like it's luck of the draw oftentimes where you're going to find these sorts of things. And the more people we have doing it, the better our chances are and the more resolution we can get. So 
you know, is it is it fun to bring in undergrads into this process and be able to collaborate and see these light switches being turned on sometimes for the first time in their lives? Oh, yeah, no, I, I have always enjoyed working with undergraduates in, in the research setting. And I think partly it's because I enjoy teaching in the field and you get to take them out in the field and, and collect and so on. But then, you know, I, I talk with undergraduates all the time about, you know, I'm really into my classes, but, you know, the classes we're doing things in lab and I always already know what the answer is supposed to be. It's really just about, you know, I, I want to discover something, hmm. that curiosity. And it's, I, I feel tremendous empathy uh, with that because I had that same curiosity when I was a child and then uh, an adolescent and a young adult going to college. And because we are an undergraduate institution, we don't have graduate students. So they are my real research partners. Nice. And when you have students who have interest and curiosity and the temperament to do research, and that's not everybody, but I've been really lucky to have a string of really fabulous undergraduate research assistants, helpers, colleagues, and um, I think they are so eager and willing to just dig in, and if they can get committed to a project, really can, it can enhance what they're doing in their classes so much and then also learning skills that they can then take on into their future career whether they choose to become scientists academics or whether they choose to do something else and so i do incorporate uh lots and lots of undergraduates in fact the insect damage work on the cedar mountain flora um, was a student who wandered into he'd taken a couple of classes with me and he wandered into office hours one day and he said you know I really wanted to do research, but I'm not interested in this, that, or the other thing that was available uh, here in the department. So like, you know, what do you have on offer? And I have this folder that I pull out of my file cabinet that it's got all the ideas for, <laughs> you know, things that the, you know, students might be interested in. And so I said, well, you know, the floor that's out there on the cabinets, we've noticed that it's, you know, it's all chewed. It's got all kinds of different insect damage on it. And there have been some folks who've looked at insect damage in fossil plants. And it seems a shame to send this flora back without doing that analysis. And he was kind of interested in entomology. And so he's like, yeah, I could do that. And he went through and he documented and categorized all the different kinds of damage. He looked at the proportion of the leaf that was damaged, which is really one of the first times that that had been quantified. And I just got an email over the weekend from a graduate student who's interested in using our data for a much larger analysis because we had approached this in a much more quantitative way than, than others had. And, you know, for him, it was a great experience of learning how to work with the material, how to use the microscope and the camera and how to digitize the photos and, and measure things off those digital images to really dig into learning how to recognize different types of, of damage that are done by different kinds of, of insects. And, you know, he walked away with this really rich experience and a publication. So I think that undergraduate research, particularly at institutions like ours, where we're not in the business of graduate education, really can enhance the student experience in ways that is really a quantum leap for the development of the students. Oh, for sure. And then to be able to contribute to something that really isn't 
as eloquently or, or deeply understood like herbivory in the early angiosperms and just the thoughts that could come from that. You know, one of the great things about that paper that you, you published with each other was that it, it tells a bigger story about this leap from, you know, a gymnosperm dominated foliage group where there was, you know, one type of food available to now this new player onto the scene. And did that happen as rapidly as, as you know, some other things could have happened and, and just being able to have those kinds of conclusions. That's, that's remarkable to have that at the undergraduate level. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, I think from, from my perspective as a scholar, undergraduates don't know necessarily what hasn't been done or what can't mm-hmm. be done. So they haven't yet gotten jaded in the way that sometimes our more sophisticated graduate students and, and colleagues can be. And so they're willing to try stuff and, you know, throw a semester or six weeks in the summer into trying something. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And you still learn something. Um, I think that that feels risky for graduate students, for folks young, early in their career. And for, you know, once you get to be an older person like me, you're, um, you know, you're kind of stuck where your thinking is. And so what I find so refreshing about working with undergraduates is they'll come in with some crazy idea and I'll like, yeah, let's throw a semester into trying that. (laughs) Sometimes it works out fabulously. Sometimes it doesn't. Okay. The student still has taken something really valuable away from the experience, but I think it, it keeps me fresh in thinking about things in new ways of being open to the creativity of trying out that crazy idea. I'm not sure that I would I would do that as much if I weren't working with undergraduates on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective alone, just the thought of going into uncharted territory or something that might not be what, quote unquote, sexy or hit that high impact journal. Yeah, I think a lot of these major research institutions where it's publish or perish kind of uh, shy away from some of these studies that, okay, they may not pay off big picture, but there's still a story to be told there. And and just finding insect herbivory alone, for instance, is amazing. But then to characterize it again, it's it's so nice and refreshing to hear that from an academic institution, because I think we're, we're, we're penalizing a lot of good science because it's not high impact enough. Yeah. And, you know, I think I, I was having this conversation over the weekend with a colleague and I think there is this pressure for high impact and, you know, things that are publishable in high impact journals, things that are fundable by big institutions. And that isn't necessarily where all of our discovery is going to come from. Hmm. And so I think the being able to, to take that creative kind of crazy idea and just mess with it for a little while to see if there's something there. Maybe there is fabulous. Maybe there isn't. Okay. And then you can go on to the next thing. And I think that my experience is that our, our undergraduates are, are willing to open their minds to that because they haven't <laughs> they haven't like yet learned that, you know, they need to be focusing in a particular way to to get their careers underway. They're willing to just go out there and find something for the heck of finding it. Good, good. That's how science should be. <laughs> Right on. Well, Dr. Ahrens, this has been fascinating. If people want to keep track, obviously, it sounds like there's a lot more discoveries coming out of your lab in the not too distant future and plenty more on the horizon. If people want to keep in touch and and keep up to speed with what you have going on, how do you how do you recommend they find out more about your work? Well, they can go to hws.edu and they can search me in the geoscience department. And we try to keep our publications and our, our, our 
our pages up to date with what we're doing in the lab. Um, you can also search there. We frequently have little stories on the website about what we're working on, what we're doing. We just had some undergraduates going to the Geologic Society of America meeting, and there's some pictures of their work up there as well. So I would go to our website and have a look. Wonderful. Well, I think it's safe to say you've given every plant nerd listening to this a lot more to think about in terms of the flowering plants we share this planet with. Uh, I really thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Your work is absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much. Wonderful. Have a good day. You too. Cheers. Jeez, so much to think about for all of us plant nerds out there, especially if you're into deep time geological perspectives on things. I would love to check out that site in Utah. How about you? I don't know. I think it's one of the most satisfying things in the world to pull up a rock, split it open, or turn it over and see a fossil that hasn't seen the light for millions upon millions of years. It gives me goosebumps every time, and I don't think that joy that I had as a kid is ever going to go away. That's why I love paleobotany so much, and I'm actually pretty jealous of anyone that's in that field, in a good way. I think Dr. Ahrens and her colleagues are doing an incredible work And they're telling a story not only of ecology in the past, but how climates change, how life responds to major changes in climate and the environment. It's important work going on, and we need more boots on the ground. I thank her for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. Again, all of the links to her research are up on the website. Just navigate to the podcast section and look for this episode. I thank you all for listening. I thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider going over to Patreon and becoming a patron. A special shout out to all of my patrons that are donating at the producer level. Without them, this podcast would be a mere shadow of what it is today. And thank you to everyone who's given at all in any way. I really do appreciate it. If money isn't your thing, at the very least, consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. As always, keep listening. A lot of great things on the horizon. So many good guests. Probably a lot more paleobotanical people in the not-too-distant future. Until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.